Welcome to On Boys, real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. We're your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net and Janet Allison of boysalive.com. This is part two of our conversation with Australia's boy champion, Maggie Dent. Be sure to go back to the episode just before this one for the beginning of our conversation. Enjoy. So Maggie, I want to kind of back up a little bit from from adolescence back to elementary school because I am hearing over and over again from parents about their boys getting in trouble because the girls, maybe they were all playing tag and suddenly the girls don't want to play and the boy's still kidding. And then the boy who can't articulate as well, Mm -hmm. the situation gets in trouble. That sets up this um, animosity between the boys and the girls. Oh, she always gets away with it. She was at fault. Perhaps she was maybe. It's putting our boys in this place of their hands are tied. What do they yeah. do? They're, they're feeling very unheard and um, it, it makes them angry at their, at their classmates. Yeah. It is part of that social conditioning, again, and, and the inevitability that it's a bo- going to be a boy's fault or the inevitability that mm-hmm. at some point um, boys will, um, you know, they are just inherently, deliberately trying to mess the world up. There's just this, it's really, it's really annoying in the sense that we still speak more harshly to little boys. And you can watch that, your elementary classes, our early childhood classes. You know, I visit them quite often working with early childhood educators. And, um, you know, I saw a little boy who, who trod on the edge of a truck and actually hurt his foot quite badly and he was crying. And an, an educator came over and just said, you need to stop that snivelling. It's long enough now. And if you don't stop it, you can go and stand in the corner. We have to really start challenging that social conditioning again. So boys will be boys is not acceptable without boundaries. However, you cannot punish a little boy for something where he unintendedly ran into a girl or another boy, or he deliberately lined them up and took them out. So there's two very different scenarios there. And I think it's the same with superhero play. So what we've got in Australia, um, in a lot of our early childhood settings, you're not allowed to let little boys wear their superhero gear. No, no Batman, no Superman, no, you know. And my boys were mad Ninja Turtles. And so seriously, they wouldn't have gone to their early childhood setting. I'm sorry, that's the only way I got them there. So what we've done is a one-size-fits-all without recognising that underneath that, that's actually making him enthusiastic enough to go into an environment that he doesn't do all that well in. He gets into trouble, but he's going to go because he's going as. Now, I'm really concerned there's another message in that too, that we need to know that the number one main biological calling, still because we're still part caveman and cavewoman, is to be the defender and protector. Boys are still biologically wired, you know, lay their lives down um, amazingly. And I spent a month walking the battlefields in France and Belgium where my grandfather went. And mm-hmm. when you hear of young lads, 17 and 18, lying about their age to go and fight a war to keep their people, you know, particularly their mum and their siblings alive, you get this understanding it's it's a very strong drive. So if we shut that down without respecting it, and that means that that core archetype in there, you listen to their language. They're actually trying to kill baddies to save goodies. 
And I think we're really, really messing that one up a little bit. While we put it all in one box, it's just going to be bad. It's not going to end well. However, if a little boy or a couple of boys are running around being superheroes and are too noisy or scare some other children, then we pull them aside gently and say, now, this is the area you can be superheroes, but these children um, are feeling a little bit unsafe with your play. Mm-hmm. Then we're not shaming them. We're giving them some guidance into where that works. I get so sick of us banning everything yes. uh, without yeah. teaching. And our boys have respond to that when it comes from a warm, warm voice. Mm-hmm. And then let's be honest, the other side to this part about speaking harshly and, and being firmer and, you know, expecting the worst of boys is that we are still talking down to girls like they're a little bit weak. So if a girl falls over, you can hear the language. It's all oh, sweet, are you okay? Can we help you? Well, that's rubbish as well. You know, at the end of the day, it's a two-sided shift we've got going on. And um, I must have been well ahead of my time because when my boys were into their capes, oh, my gosh, I made so many capes at Christmas time. All the girl cousins got one. Nice. So I think it's about us knowing that girls also have a fearlessness too. Some of us, not all of us, the same as some boys and not all boys. So I think it's, you know, it's this opening of conversation around the possibilities that things aren't fixed and that we have a potential to nurture something that is really good in good people when they're older as adults. You know, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing if we hadn't had our social conscience fired up early um, mm. and, we're, we're, and it wasn't crushed in us. Yes. So can you see, again, I think that's, you know, that's why they're big conversations. And when, you know, every now and then someone says, oh, it's a bit like you dropped a bomb in our staff room, Maggie, because when we looked at all these behaviour strategies we have in our school and they're very different for boys and girls. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, well, there's your problem. Yeah. Because that has some assumptions and expectations built into that that aren't correct. It's a hard time to parent these boys also because obviously I can't control all of their interactions. So even if I am working on not shaming them for who they are and how they are in the world, they are interacting with a lot of people who do, whether that's at school or a coach uh, at a sports team who says, you know, don't be a sissy, are you going to play this game? All those things that they hear. So how can we as parents help protect that softness in our boys, give them space for that, and help maybe correct some of the shaming that's going on when they leave the house? Excellent. You know, once again, people act according to their belief systems and, you know, how they've been raised. So, uh, it is a generational shift that will take time. Sporting codes we know are now starting to have these conversations in Australia. I think it's about the conversations we have mm. in our home that unplugs what shame is. Because you remember that so much of the male code, the old one, shames others, right? We shame people who are different. It's supposed to be manly to make fun of people who have red hair or their ears are too big or it's a constant conversation around understanding and how do we talk about diversity to our boys they're just kind of oblivious to stuff most of the time and I think that's what we do around the dining table or those quiet pillow chats where we decode it for them and say you know this is I saw what happened after you saw what happened after school so you know how that imagine how that boy or that girl may be feeling now because people called her name out right publicly it really hurts doesn't it so it's the little quiet conversations and then not lectures and remember conversations that go too long boys just cannot retain the information they've got a very short amount of 
Well, <laughs> 10 words, I reckon. Um, <laughs> but a conversation that they, you pause. It's very difficult for most women to really be able to communicate well with boys and men. We can think and talk. They actually think and then talk. Yes. And that gap is, wow, it's like a lifetime for some of us. So it's creating those pockets of quite often driving the car, I would bring something up, I, you know, that I know that they had seen a witness that they haven't even paid attention to. And I'll ask if they saw it. <laughs> Nine times out of ten, they didn't either. Um, and that's because of single focus, because they were picking their nose at the time, and that was far more important. But I think it's us being a coach, a gentle and, and, and perceptive coach. And I think our boys need to see that when we get angry, it's actually really important that anger isn't, I keep, keep seeing that people getting angry, across at boys getting angry. And I go, we're still letting that be the only emotion that's valid in the male world. So that understanding of bringing out um, vulnerable so that you know the little boy who the sad angry boy gets dropped off in elemental school and missing desperately his mum or dad at the gate and runs in and punches someone he's just translated his sadness into that action which has been I don't have the words for that right. so giving them the words for that is a constant that's why I keep saying we have behavior schools in you know in parts of Australia for the boys mainly 97 percent boys who are unable to be in mainstream schooling and they're unable to be there because they haven't had the capacity built in them before five around social and emotional learning. And that's my big focus. If we can nurture the little boys to be able to own sadness and anger and fear or being excluded, that's a massive pain in our little boys' self-worth barometer and not having a friend. And I'm, you know, I've written an article about fragile boy friendships that really went crazy around the world because we just assume they'll make friends quite easily, same as girls, but they don't have the words that that girls use to, I, I like to be your friend and you can be my friend and we can do, boys just kind of do it by proximity. Who do I play next to a lot? They don't share words. So if that doesn't happen enough, then they're just like little planets you know, and that's kind of a really important space for us to nurture. They're not good at um, creating new friendships. So sometimes transitioning into a new environment without a friend triggers their anxiety like you cannot believe, which will sometimes come out as aggressive behaviour or silliness. And we want to punish a boy that's trying to tell you that he's really struggling right now um, in that environment, all that change, they're not good with change, seriously not good with change. So, again, I think it's about us helping, particularly our mums, we're the ones that get emotions, you know, early, mm-hmm. to be those emotional coaches and let us know that um, it, it is it does take time. Yeah. And also yeah. um, your alpha boys don't want to talk about emotions, do they? And I worried seriously, here's some good news, I worried seriously about my two alpha boys because they really were like, Oh, complete alphas, all about me. So this is where you're going to give me hope, right? Because yeah, I am right in the middle so of it now. much hope right now. So I noticed there wasn't a lot of empathy with them. Um, and there's the first and third born. The second's the most sensitive, beautiful lamb, and the baby's a lamb. So I decided I could see there wasn't much empathy there. I mean, you've got to remember when boys jump on their brothers, it's actually a sign of uh, how much I love them. It's not always a sign I want to kill them. Mm-hmm. See how we miss, you know, jumping on them, you know, slapping and wrestling and, bumping and all that is actually affection, affection at play. And that's lots of parents really jump on that too soon. I go, hang on a minute. It's only when they hurt each other. Okay, so I got a guinea pig. 
because I wanted them to learn how to stroke something. So in other words, to be soft and gentle. If they don't have a kinesthetic experience, it's not going to happen. You can read a thousand picture books. It's not going to happen. So you get the guinea pig or a little tiny, don't get a puppy because that can live to 18. So we want it to be, because <laughs> I also want it to die. Now that sounds <laughs> awful. But the biggest thing, I worked in death and dying, palliative care in the funeral industry and I'm a celebrant, you know, I've done 250 funerals and is men can't handle loss because it attacks the self-worth. Yeah. Right? I can't handle that because somehow or other I can't fix that. So, um, and then when it died, you know, that's a great opportunity to go through big, ugly feelings that hurt the chest. So huge learning curve. So anyway, my number two rooster. So he was the first one to become a daddy and I was astounded for two reasons. He wasn't the impatient, grumpy kind of, he was this tender, incredibly patient, loving daddy. And I've watched the other rooster as well. Instead of copying how their dad fathered, my rooster boys had copied how I mothered. Wow. So there's hope, hope, really big hope that they hadn't, their dad wasn't a bad dad. He just was the traditional, unavailable, emotionally finger pointing, shouting, that was it. And then the second thing, I sat next to that third rooster boy who's bought on Halloween, so you can imagine what sort of a character he is, unbelievably confident. He's the one with the lollies. I sat next to him one day and said, hey, babe, you know what? You're an amazing, tender, loving daddy. I'm so proud of you. But I, I reckon it was the fourth guinea pig. And he looked at me like, and I, I said, what? And I said, well, you didn't cry when the first guinea pig died. You didn't cry when the second guinea pig died. You didn't cry when the third guinea pig, well, when that fourth guinea pig died, you cried like mad for a week. And I reckon that's why you're a good dad. You know what he did? Jennifer, you'll get this. Whatever. Whatever, mum. <laughs> but he's a great, empathetic, caring dad right now. Totally. So who cares if he remembers the guinea pigs? Mission accomplished. <laughs> you, I don't know if you listeners can hear this in my voice, but the hope she just gave me, you guys, check in with me in 10 years. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to hold my breath. And if you if you don't know, uh, in Maggie's book, and I'm sure in your talks you do this as well, she talks about rooster sons and lamb sons. <laughs> and I was telling Janet this before we started talking with you today. Where was that 21 years ago when somebody needed to tell me that my firstborn was a rooster? Oh. I mean, I recognized that he was strong-willed and, and high energy. I figured that out pretty quickly. But in your book, you do such a great job, not only of describing these basic temperaments, but also then what we can do as parents and teachers to work with that temper temperament, to acknowledge all the gifts that are inherent in it. And then, for instance, work on building up empathy, if that's not something that comes, empathy and sensitivity, if it's not coming naturally to somebody. And also building courage in our lambs. You know, that was the other thing is that, so the world still, you know, celebrates alpha males, loud, successful, chest banging, you know, all of those sorts of things. And that's one of the shifts we've got to have that in the old code, they're the only way to be a male. And on the other side, the sensitive, gentle ones were somehow or other less than male. And, you know, then if you, if your son was, you know, gay as well, you would kind of failed big time. So, our world is shifting and what I um, what I noticed is that my, you know, number two son who's a lamb, I, I watched him and realised he wasn't weak. He was actually quite courageous but you know what? He didn't chest bang. So if the old, you know, the, the rooster's got a 
certificate at school, they'd come home and, oh, gosh, it was before technology, rang every relation they have on the planet to tell them, (laughs) ran and told the neighbours, told the milkman, they told everybody. And then I found, you know, my lamb son's certificate at the bottom of his bag at the end of term. And then I noticed at different times we'd go and do something and, you know, whatever it was, jumping off a rock into a river or off a bridge, it was the lambs that jumped first. So underneath the big alpha is still a sensitive boy that struggles with his own big feelings and he is really hard. They're very driven. You don't have to do anything with them. They're just so driven. So my first, um, you know, firstborn and firstborns traditionally around 70% are also very driven. They're kind of, that's their place in the world. Um, He's, you know, he's a lawyer in a massive law firm in Sydney and um, He has just got a new promotion to, I think it's called special counsel. And before that, he was a senior associate, one of the youngest he ever had. And when I talk to him, he has to constantly have a new target in his life or he gets bored. Mm -hmm. So when I said to him, is that, you know, what does that mean? He says, I don't know. It's another ladder. I got to the top of the other one. Now I'm at the bottom of the other one. He's not motivated in life unless he's got something he's striving for. So can you see that at different times, if, you know, it can be skateboarding. Um, my boys were into surfing and I watched as they were challenging themselves within that. So if school wasn't wonderful, where are they able to challenge themselves? You know, because there is that mammoth hunter in there that wants to challenge himself. And we as women sometimes, that's where that part about holding them too close because they need to develop their own courage, but also they need to learn from their own experiences. This is a really big takeaway again is that, um, you know, natural consequences are the best teacher for particularly our rooster boys because our lambs are a little bit more thoughtful and wise. They don't think and they can hurt themselves. Did you used to have wooden seesaws in your playgrounds? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And did they get taken out? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We still have some, you guys. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. We've got, you know, tokenistic ones. And why they were so good was that how, you know, a boy will not listen to his loving mum or because dad gets it, dad knows he gets smacked, that's good for him. And we're going, oh, don't do that, be careful. He needs to experience at least three smacks in the head (laughs) before he's realised that actually does hurt (laughs) and I might need to make another choice next time. Please note, she said it takes at least three smacks. It never works with just one. No. No, because they kind of like an adventure with one. Uh, but the third time, it really is starting to hurt. And that's why sometimes, and sometimes we have to celebrate the ouchies and the owies and not see it as a sign of bad parenting is that, you know, where's the first aid kit? Are you quite good at, you know, patching up your own wounds? And I do remember one of my, my it was one of my lambs. Um, and we talked about chopping kindling for the fire. I said, never keep your hand on the piece of wood before you bring the axe down. It's just a really good tip. And always listen to, because I think there's a a wise voice within us that's trying to help us make good choices. And, you know, that it's there. Just pause. Anyway, you know, it didn't happen. And as I was racing to the hospital, you know, it was about a month later with, you know, the towel wrapped around and blood coming out. I said, so did you, did you hear that voice that said maybe not a good idea? And he said, you know, I did, but I did it anyway. (laughs) He's now got that because he has permanently a scar. And we can see that as got that. 
oh my goodness, didn't they get that? No, they didn't. Remember the brain's wired a little differently. A girl would think thoughtfully, gee, I could cut myself, you know, because that logical, rational part of the brain is a little bit closer to the processing. And so, you know, again, a broken arm and stitches isn't a sign that we're not doing our raising of our sons well. It's a sign that your son is learning how to navigate the world through his own choices. And that, I think, is is where, you know, that was kind of why the book was so important because I wanted mummies to see that actual fact stepping back and allowing can actually raise your son not to need you to make every decision for him later in life. Um, and, you know, that mistakes, they can, we want them to come to us as well. Can I touch on that briefly? Is, yes. Um, if we shame a boy when he mucks up or we, you know, make it difficult for him to, you know, hurt, to still love himself because that's the first thing he attacks is himself they don't come to us mm-hmm. they won't come to us so when we muck up we help them work out what they did wrong because they haven't got a clue quite often um, <clears throat> we help them make it right and I really believe boys need to work out themselves how to make it right because if we're always the ones saying you make it right so if you broke the neighbor's window we weren't aiming for it that is still a problem because you've damaged property which is the third rule So we're going to make that right. We're going to have to earn some money to pay for the window and possibly maybe mow their lawn for a few months. How often do I see mummies say, don't worry, you did it two months? No. We need them to complete the making it right because this is where accountability comes from. Mm -hmm. And we do it with great love. We remind them with great love. Babe, don't forget you've got two more lawn mowings next door. We do it with great love. Um, And then we go through next time. So poor choices for boys. They actually haven't got that capacity to go, hmm, I wonder what I'd do next time. Mm-hmm. So that's where that coaching comes in that says you're not bad, you made a poor choice, and this is a better, let's have a look at some of the better choices and problem solve with them. Free-range play, you know, Lenore Skenazy, that's where they learnt that stuff. Wow, that didn't work, let's have a go at this. But co- we're now, with our intensive parenting, you know, we're doing all that for them, which means they don't learn those things as they head into adolescence and adulthood. And that's that's kind of a concern for us to help them work those things out as they launch off into the next stage of risk-taking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I know our listeners are wondering, where can I get your book, Maggie? Tell us where people can find you, where people can find your book. It is on um, Amazon and, you know, Apple Play, Google Play, and all those. The ebook is available because we realise it's so expensive to ship it to um, America. We also have um, on my maggiedent.com, you know, website, enormous amounts of articles that at any point that can really help you with a solution, including 14-year-old unmotivated smelly um, boys. That's a really popular one. I um, love that one. <laughs> Is it a coincidence that I've been raising teenage boys for the last 10 years? Probably not. (laughs) And then uh, my YouTube channel has, I can't remember, 50 or 60 videos where I explore all sorts of things in a very short way. What's really interesting too is that mums and dads who are co-parenting, you know, want to want to be good, great together, but us women often read all the parenting books and wonder why the men don't want to read it and they're not big at reading. There's There's a percentage that will, but... So that's one of the reasons why um, a quick, you know, you short YouTube videos actually quite often explains it. And they see that I'm not really a finger pointer. They see I'm a bit ridiculous, so they kind of like it. So it's it's a new kind of shift in Australia that my dad's only seminars just sell out almost faster than my others because dads want to come for a laugh, but they want to take home stuff they can do tomorrow. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I give them a hand up because you know what happens when they walk in the door, they get interrogated and I give them a handout so they, they've got all the answers, see, because they forget. The wife. Yeah, yeah, they already got it. And then they know and there's a whole long list of great websites and Facebook pages that will help them be a better dad. So they've actually got it right there with them. But what we do underneath it, you know, I don't, I've never met a dad who wants to be a lousy dad. Business, not one. But shifting this code is going to take mums and dads and educators all to make the similar sorts of shifts in small ways, you know, over a a number of years. And I think that um, it it is. Like I'm a self-published author, so um, in Australia it often takes me probably a couple of years to sell 5,000 of my books. I've been writing ones about, you know, calming kids down and resilience and um, adolescence. Um, (laughs) To say why this one hit a nerve is that we sold 10,000 books in two and a half weeks. Wow. That is crazy. And I kept thinking, oh, and I said to my beautiful good man, I said, this is the book I'm on the earth to write. Mm-hmm. And, and then I thought, gosh, I hope that means I don't have to die. It just yeah. means you don't have to write another one unless you that's want it. to. That's yeah. it. That's the one. And I think what I found is um, the conversations. So there was there's a podcast that was done by the ABC Radio, which is our non-commercial one. I'm talking about a book about mothering our boys. And I started getting all these emails from men and they ended up in tears because I talked about how many of our boys were really punished severely and hurt as little boys for things they don't even know what they did wrong and it triggered this massive release and a lot of men started sharing something they had been terribly shamed about and thought that if I shared that with the woman I love or my daughter she wouldn't be able to love me Mm. so that openness to the vulnerability is what really has so it hasn't just been for mums and I think When we had those conversations and realised that, you know, love love means we, we embrace it all and us women aren't that fickle. Yes. Um, but that code that we're shifting that says vulnerability is possibly the most courageous thing you can do as a man. And that's really, you know, what men kind of will. I am your mammoth hunter. Will you still want me if I tell you, you know, I did this when I was younger or this is something I've held. And quite often it was unexpressed grief. Yes. You know, as a death specialist, little boys not to, not allowed to go to dad's funeral, mum's funeral, and not allowed to talk about it, mm-hmm. burying it deeply, which of course makes it hard to open the heart to love. So, I think we keep crushing the tenderness yes. out of our little boys, yeah. um, you know, for the wrong reasons. And I think I think we're going to raise a very very different generation of young men. Well, Maggie, with your voice in the world, you can better believe we are. And. This has been so lovely to talk with you. And I know this is not our last conversation. (laughs) And as we were saying before we went live, that we look forward to you coming to America and sharing your message with our dads and our moms. And we just so appreciate you being with us today. Thank you both so much. And let's keep up the good work. Let's keep the, the light flying around the world. Yes. Thanks for joining us. You can find the show notes for this episode at onboyspodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, please share this podcast with your friends and even your community groups and schools will benefit from knowing about this resource. 
Thanks for joining us. We are Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison, and we are here to support you in parenting and teaching tomorrow's men.